We are, as Dave said, in a series called It's Time, where we're looking at the second half of the Gospel of John, and specifically what that focuses on is the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection. In last week's message, Adam started out talking about the moments that we look forward to in life. He mentioned things like getting our driver's license, our first job, meeting and marrying our spouse, having our children. This morning I want to do something similar, but it's a little bit, maybe a little bit sadder, a little bit more bittersweet, but just as precious, I think. And that's to talk about those moments where we're with a loved one. Maybe it's a spouse, a parent, a grandparent, sometimes even a child, uh, who is leaving this earthly world and going on to the next. And if you've ever had the opportunity, as I have several times actually over the years, to be with someone who is still with it enough, but you know it's going to be anytime soon, you'll often notice that they have things on their heart that they want to share with you. And normally, it's based in their love for you, right? They don't bring up all the ticky-tacky stuff from before that maybe you argued about, but they remind you how much they love you, how proud of you, how proud they are of you, right? That's the context of it. Well, as we come to today, Jesus is going to do something very similar for his disciples. And it's not uncommon, right, even within the Bible context, to see men and women who are near death to bring in their loved ones. And I think of Jacob in Genesis 49, and I think of David in 1 Kings 2, as their life here is almost done. They call in their children. And Jacob systematically goes through all 12 of his sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And he speaks a, a blessing, and, and some of it's not the greatest things you want to hear, maybe, if you're their, his son, but speaks to them prophetically as he's about to pass on to the next world. Well, here's Jesus, right? And he's about to go to the cross, but he has a few things left for his disciples, and they come in a form of an amazing prayer. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So as we do so, let's just take a quick step back and a little bit of recap to catch up to where we are and then we'll go from there. So John has written this gospel account, right? And at the very beginning, he writes these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a really long-winded way of saying there's nothing that's been created that Jesus himself didn't create. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right from the get-go, John is pointing us to the Word. He's pointing us to the living Word, Jesus Christ. And he's going to base everything in his gospel account from this point forward on that passage. Right? And so over the course of the 21 chapters that we find in John, he's going to outline seven miracles and seven I am statements that are going to help us as the readers, including what his original audience would have been, to understand why he's writing. And ultimately, and here we go, we're going to let the cat out of the bag just a little bit, but not too much. Towards the end of his gospel, 
In John chapter 20, this is what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now everything as a church that we seek to do is wrapped up in this statement. Whether it's a worship service on a Sunday morning, whether it's youth group, whether it's Wednesday nights, whether it's small groups, whether it's participating in the beanbag program, whether it's Grace Christian School, whether it's the men's retreat, whatever it may be, it's because of what John says here. And we want you to know that if you sit here this morning or you're watching online or you're hearing this message afterward, that this is our prayer for you. That in hearing these words, that the Spirit of God and His grace and mercy is drawing you to Jesus himself, that you might believe, and because you believe, have life in his name. So that's why John's writing. So last week, uh, and we're going to get to this passage in a minute, but last week Adam took the first five verses, and I just want to go back a moment because he made a really, really important point. He focused on the fact that in those first five verses, several times, Jesus talks about being glorified or glory. And that's one of those theological words that we hear, and sometimes maybe we don't quite understand the magnitude of it or what it really means. So I want to kind of give you a, a kind of street-level definition that I think might be helpful. Because those first five verses, everything after that in this prayer, are built on that. So what does glorify mean? Well, let me say it this way. Glorify means to make a big deal about something, right? So when we celebrate, if our sports team wins or an Olympic athlete wins the gold medal, right? They receive, in a sense, glory. Much is made about them. They have a medal put around them. They're given a championship trophy, right? There, the attention, the focus of the attention is on them. What Jesus says here is what all of life is meant to be is to glorify God. So if you think of any of the passages you know that have the word glorified in, just put in there to make a big deal about. Right? So even right here at the beginning of John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. And let's substitute it in. Make much about your son that your son may make much about you. And that's going to be the foundation of what Jesus prays in this passage to make a big deal about God. Now here's the issue. If life really is about the glory of God, if it's really about making a big deal about him, then there's two uncomfortable truths we need to deal with really quickly. One is that God has a right to seek that glory. Because of who he is, because of who John said he was at the beginning of chapter one, the one who created everything, then he and only he has the right to seek this glory, and it's not wrong of him to do so. So think about it this way. Uh, it, it's amazing if you've ever seen the king or queen of England. They have, not only do they have all these palatial palaces that they live in, these castles, right? But they have a train, they have their own private jet, they have multiple limousines. Now what happens when they go to their castle, or they go to their train, or they go to their plane, right? The servants let them on and honor them, right? Now, what happens if I would try to go on their train? 
it wouldn't be so much an honoring factor, would it? No, there would be some guards there who would nicely accompany me over and talk to me about what in the world I was thinking. And then afterwards, if I got out of there unscathed, I'd have to explain to my wife why I did something that dumb. Right? They let the queen on because she's the queen. We give glory to God because he's God. Because he is the one who was, is, and is to come. Who's always been. Before time began, he was there. And we need to keep that in mind as we look through this passage. So we have to deal with this uncomfortable truth that God has a right to seek glory. But the second part is what Adam mentioned last week. We've made a huge, and I believe this was the word Adam used, mistake. We've made a huge mistake because we've let ourselves seek the glory that God and God alone belongs receiving. Romans 3.23, and Adam referenced this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's, let's rephrase that, use what I said. For we have all sinned and fall short of making much of God. That's what it means to be a sinner. We've been distracted from who he is and making much of him, and we've put that on ourselves instead. And so Jesus now is coming to the, the crucial moment of his earthly ministry where he's going to go to the cross. And he says, I'm going to be glorified. I'm now being glorified. Now think about how odd of a statement that seems to be on a surface level. Right? We don't say, I'm about to be glorified. I'm going to the electric chair. Or I'm getting a lethal injection, right? That's not what we think of when we think of glory. But he's saying his most glorified moment is going to be on an instrument of death. And it's because of what that will accomplish. So that now sets us up to look at this passage. So I want to deal with first um, who Jesus is praying for and why he's praying. We'll do that briefly, and then we'll get into the actual content of the prayer. So if you've ever noticed before reading through the scriptures, you'll notice that there are several places throughout all four Gospels that record Jesus praying. What's interesting about it, though, is we only know the context in most of those cases of his prayer. It might be the where. He was up on a mountain. It might be the when. It was early in the morning. It might be who he's praying to, obviously, his father. Right? It gives us those details, but it rarely, rarely ever gives us the content, other than when he prays for um, at the, the grave of... Um, thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, at, the, at the grave of Lazarus and when he's in the garden before he goes to the cross. But here is the longest of his prayers. And when we say the Lord's Prayer, we normally are referring to one he taught his disciples to pray. But this actually is the Lord's Prayer. This is what he's praying for, as Dave pointed out, this morning, he's praying for himself, and he's praying for us. And in the context we're going to look at right now, he's praying for those disciples who are going to go through a difficult time that they're still not fully aware of, and it's going to happen shortly. So verses 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know them in truth, that I came from you, and, you have, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. 
I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So in this first section, Jesus makes a statement, and let's not glance over it. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me. That word manifested, in some of your translations, it might say revealed. It means to um, expose or make visible or recognizable. Jesus is saying as he prays for his disciples, Father, I've shown them who you really are. In Jesus' life, we see who God truly is. So that's where he starts as he prays for them. But then look at how gracious his words are about them. He says, you know, they were yours, you gave them to me. Look how personal it is. Now they know everything that you've given me. They've believed the word that I gave them. They believe you sent me. He goes through all these things. And, and, and as you read it, you might want to take a pause and think back and wait a second. When we look at the story of the disciples in the gospel accounts, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, it doesn't seem to match what Jesus is saying here overall. Right? So if you think about it, John's writing it. If you look in, John, in Luke chapter 9, you see a story where they go to a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village doesn't believe Jesus. And so what is John's response? Jesus, you want me to call down fire on him? And Jesus is like, what? No, <laughs> that's not my purpose. Right? And just shortly before that, Jesus had said to John and James and the other disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And yet, what is James, uh, what's John doing? He's wanting to call down destruction on those who didn't believe what Jesus said. Or think of Peter. Right? He, he says, Jesus asks, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then shortly after, what does Jesus say to him? Oh, no, you can't go to the cross. Uh-uh. No way. I'm not going to permit it. Right? So we see these disciples, you know, they, they're, they're really keen on, even up to the Last Supper, being with Jesus in the moment where he's disclosing that somebody's going to betray him. Right? And what do they argue about? You know, I wonder who's going to be first in the kingdom. I bet it's going to be me. Right? These are the disciples he's talking about. They look more like, if you remember the movie or one of the remakes of it, they look like the Bad News Bears. Right? They're this, this, this mit, misfit team that somehow Jesus chose. And it doesn't fit. Why doesn't he go for a higher caliber disciple? And yet, look at the gracious words he speaks to them. As he's about, not in days, not in weeks, not in months, but literally within hours, he is going to go to the cross. As he's praying this, one of his twelve has already betrayed him, Judas. The others will soon scatter, and one of them, Peter, is going to deny him outright, not once, not twice, but as we know, three times. And yet, look at the gracious words Jesus speaks about them. Why? Because Jesus' eyes were on who they were becoming because what lies ahead for him in the cross and the resurrection, not who they were 
in that moment. He knew what God was up to, even if it didn't seem apparent, apparent on the surface. That, that, that makes me think of my maternal grandmother. So my maternal grandmother lived with us for a number of years as she had gotten older. I was the youngest of her grandkids. I was an only child. And I loved my grandmother and often had a lot of fun with her. But there were days where, quite honestly, I didn't want her around because her being there meant I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. And so there were times I would, I would just grumble and complain and I would be nasty about it. Now, thankfully, I came to Christ shortly before she died, and I got to see her in a whole new light as a result of that. But at her funeral service, I cannot tell you the number of people who came up to me. And when they found out who I was, just gushed at the things my grandmother said about me. Because she got this. As a person of faith, she got this. She didn't see me for who I just was in the moment. But she knew God was active and was calling me to himself. And she viewed me through that lens. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's viewing his disciples through the lens of who they're becoming because of what he's about to go and do. So we know who he's praying for. Now, why is he praying for them? Well, look at that last part. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Now, he's already told them. It's better for him to go. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's gone through all this. But he comes back, and he prays to his father, and he's like, Dad, I know I have to leave. I know what you've called me to, and I know they're going to be left, and I know it's going to be challenging, and I know they don't get what's about to happen yet, but they're going to face something really difficult. Dad, I'm praying to you for them because their life is about to change. They're still here, but I'm leaving. And he, and he makes clear as he does this, they're still his, he still loves them, and his relationship with them and his purpose for them as his disciples still stands. Even though for a moment, things are gonna look like they're in chaos. His plan has not wavered. And his love for them has not wavered. And that's good news for you and I, because the same is true about us. So let's now get into the heart of this prayer for the disciples. And we're going to look at uh, verses basically 11 to 18. And I want us to notice three things. I want us to notice that Jesus prays for security for his disciples. He prays for sanctification for his disciples, and he prays for sentness for his disciples. So security, sanctification, and sentness. And here's the first part of it. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
So Jesus, as he prays to the Father for the security of his disciples here, I want us to notice that first, this prayer is rooted in the Father's righteousness. Notice it says, Holy Father. Now, Jesus often refers to God as Father. In fact, the Pharisees disliked that because they understood in his particular context that that relationship meant he was equal to God, and they thought it was blasphemous. So it's not unusual for Jesus to reference God as Father. But here he, he makes a little subtle difference that it would be easy to overlook as you read through the passage, but is, I think, important because Jesus didn't waste words. He says, Holy Father. As he prays for them and their security, he understands that that security is rooted in the Father's righteousness. It's rooted in the fact that God the Father always does, always does what is good, right, and perfect. But look as he keeps going. He says, keep them. It's not only rooted in the Father's righteousness, it's rooted in his love and faithfulness. God, these were yours. You gave them to me for a season. I've kept them. I'm giving them back to you. Holy Father, righteous one who always does what's good, right, and perfect, keep them in your love and in your faithfulness because you always keep your promises. Keep them. And then he says, um, let me find it. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my spot, guys. I apologize. Oh, in your name. It's not only God's righteousness, it's not only his love and faithfulness, but it's his power. Jesus recognizes for any of this to happen, God needs to be in control. And he says, Father, you're holy. You will keep them because you're powerful. So it's rooted in God's righteousness, faithfulness, and power. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So it's rooted in the father's righteousness, faithfulness, and power. Secondly, the security Jesus prays for results in two things. It results in unity, and it results in joy. Look how he says, that they may be one as we are one. The same relationship that Jesus has with the Father, he wants them to have with each other and with him. Make them one, unify them, God, in this time. Now, we know when chaos ensues, even when we have a death of a loved one, maybe you've had a family member who was the one who kind of kept the family together, and afterwards, people started going off their own way. Jesus says, I know what's coming up could lead to division, could lead them to, to lose focus. God, unify them. But he doesn't just say unify them. He says, I also want them to have my joy fulfilled in them. God, give them the joy that I have. The joy that it says, he 
he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He wants his disciples to have that joy in them. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So it's rooted in who the Father is. It leads to unity and joy. And then lastly, and this is important, Jesus' prayer for security and protection recognizes that there is a real enemy. He says, I do not want you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Now, in the midst of the cultural wars we're a part of, and in the divisions that are in our society, we have to remember there is a real enemy. But it's not those who differ with us. It's not even those who hate us. It's the God of this world. It's the one who led the rebellion against God and his glory. It's the evil one. It's the devil himself. That's what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't pray for his disciples to be taken out of the world or protected from the people of the world, even though he clearly states here that they hate them because they're not of the world. Rather, he prays that the Father will protect them from the evil one, the one who's behind this world system, the one who's come to steal and kill and destroy, it says in John 10. His whole purpose is to draw people away from God and keep them away from him by focusing them elsewhere. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I were at a traditional white elephant Christmas exchange. And there was somebody who came, and he had this huge box. And he had one person in mind that he wanted to get that box because he knew that this person would be enticed by its size. And sure enough, when it came time for the exchange, this person was eyeing it up, and his wife is nudging him, and he said, don't take that box. And sure enough, what does he do? He takes the box. And what was in the box? Out an entire set of outdated encyclopedias <laughs> that were like from 20 years ago, right? But this guy knew, oh, you know, he's going to be enticed when he sees the size of this box, right? And Satan works the same way. He wants us to be distracted by the things of this world so that we're not fixated and glorifying Christ. Right? That's why John, who also writes three letters at the end of his first one, says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's how he actually ends it. No other words of encouragement, no prayer. He says, keep yourself from idols. Why? Because the devil wants to distract us from making much about God. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. Now, I want to do a little something different here real quick at the end of each of these segments that we're looking at. And I want to show us, and these aren't by any means the only passages we could go to, but I want to show us how Jesus' prayer winds up being answered for his disciples. 
So these are two passages in the book of Acts. The first one is right after Jesus ascends to heaven. And the disciples go back, and they're in the upper room, and they're all there along with the other followers of Jesus. And what does it say? It says they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. With one accord. After Jesus dies, after he's resurrected, after he physically leaves them, here they are, the answer to his prayer beginning. But it's not just there, right? Then they start to proclaim the gospel message, and the church begins in Acts chapter 2. And what do we see? We see that it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of the bread and prayers. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to others as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's the joy. Having favor with God and with all people. Praising God and having favor with all people. Oh, and by the way, God was adding to their numbers daily. Right? Here's the answer, in part, to Jesus' prayer for his disciples. All right? Secondly, the sanctification. Two verses. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this is perhaps the most famous verse from this passage. Jesus not only prays for their security, he prays for their sanctification. And there's another big word that we use, right, that we throw out a theological term. What does it mean? Sanctification simply means the act of setting something or someone apart for a particular or special purpose. So Jesus is praying, God, set them apart for your purposes. Why? Because they're citizens of a different kingdom. Right? Paul says in Colossians 1, he prays for the Colossian church, and he says, I thank God who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are now citizens of a different kingdom if we have believed on Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever had the chance, as I have, to be at a naturalization ceremony, where citizens from around the world come to the United States, they've held a green card, and now they say, I want to become a U.S. citizen. It's a really neat, fantastic ceremony to be part of. But as part of that, they take an oath. And in that oath, they connect them to the rights and privileges they have now as new United States citizens. But they also remind them of their obligations or um, their responsibilities. And that's what it's like here, right? Sanctification is identifying the fact that, yes, I'm secure in Jesus Christ. He set me apart for his purposes. He's put me in relationship with the Father. And as part of that relationship, there are things I'm called to as his follower. So Jesus says, sanctify them. Set them apart. Take them away from the values and perspectives of this world, God, and make your values and perspective theirs. Help them to see that they're part of your family, that they're on mission with you, and embrace the transformation that you're doing in their lives. 
You see, really what he's saying is sanctification is daily our experience being changed to meet our position, right? So we're his, we've been justified legally, as Adam said last week. We're legally declared righteous in our standing before God. And now Jesus is praying, start to live out of that standing. Let your experience become one that matches who you really are. Let your lives begin to look like the lives that have been impacted by God's redeeming work in you. A redeeming work that secures you. So he says, sanctify them, Father. But he doesn't stop there. He says, sanctify them. And here's the hard part in truth, right? We live in a, in a time when truth is something that is devalued. It's questioned. Is there really any truth, right? It's really no different than when Jesus was around, right? Because when he gets before Pilate, what does Pilate say? <laughs> what is truth? Right? But Jesus is saying there is truth. God, sanctify them in that truth. Sanctify them in who I am, right? Because just a few chapters earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is asking the Father to take the truth of who he is and set his followers apart in that truth. The basis of our sanctification is the truth as God lays it out, not what the world says is true, not even what we say is true, but what he says is true. And then Jesus says where that truth is found. It's found in the word. Your word is truth. It's the Bible. It's becoming men and women who are set apart because we're soaking up God's word in our life. We're seeking to understand it more. We're seeking for the spirit to use it to make us more like Jesus. Now, I just want to put a quick parenthetical phrase on that. Our sanctification requires humility. And here's why I say that, why I say this is important. It's obviously true that submitting to ourself, ourselves to somebody else takes humility. No question. And that's part of it. But we also have to have humility towards other believers and to those who don't yet know Jesus. To other believers, because maybe they're not at the same spot we are in understanding God's word yet, and we want to lovingly bring them along, or there might be areas where there's disagreement, but it's not a major area, and we don't need to act as though it is. Towards the unbelieving world, to those who don't yet know Jesus, right, our purpose isn't to own them, it's not to argue them into the kingdom, right? It's not to say, I'm right and you're wrong. It's to point them to Jesus so that they can know who he is. You see, in that passage on spiritual warfare with Paul, he references the sword of the Spirit. But that sword is a defensive sword that we use as we are in a battle of a lifetime in the spiritual places with the evil one. It's not a sword that we go out and stab others with to point out how right we are and how wrong they are. What I want to encourage you to is that really, when it comes to unbelievers, those who don't yet know Jesus, let the word be like a paintbrush in your life, in your life as a canvas that the Spirit is using to show others the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ so that they can see him for who he truly is. Now, they might not accept him. They might not believe him. They might still reject him. But there are going to be some, I truly believe, that because of you 
letting them into your life, letting God show them how he has transformed you, will come to Jesus. Let your life be that canvas that the Spirit uses to show others how beautiful Jesus really is. So that your life might be a compelling witness to them. Now, let's look at the answer prayer here. We're almost finished. Jesus' prayer for sanctification. So, there's two passages, Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And both of them, Peter and John, get called before the religious leaders of the day. And in both cases, those religious leaders are very upset. They want them to stop talking about Jesus. Knock it off, right? If you're a parent, you've probably said that. you Knock it off, right? That's what they're saying to them. Knock it off, guys. No more. You've had your fun and games. Now be quiet. And in both cases, Peter and John say to them, whether it's right to listen to you or to God, you'll have to judge. But we have to follow Jesus. Right? And in both cases afterwards, notice what happens. In the first one, in Acts chapter 4, they go back to the other believers. And this is what they pray. Isn't this awesome? And now, Lord, look upon their threats, look upon their hatred, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, you've ingrained the truth in us. Help us to stand firm in that truth, even though we're being treated this way. As you stretch out your hand to make known who Jesus is. And then in Acts chapter 5, look at what Peter and John say. Then they left the presence of the council. This was after, literally, they were just beaten. Right? The wounds are fresh. The blood maybe is flowing. And it says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Jesus' prayer, this portion of the prayer, is answered in their life. Now lastly, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. Here's the sentence part. So I am sending them into the world. This is the culmination of Jesus' prayer. He's saying, you've been made secure. I'm praying for your sanctification. And the reason both of those are important is because I'm sending you out. I was here on a mission, I'm leaving, but that mission is continuing. And guys, you're it, there's no plan B. So he's praying to the Father for them, knowing what they will encounter. Now this is important, guys, because here's what we often get wrong, right? There's three ways, I think, that we can approach life in this world. We can be in the world. We can buy into the values of the world system, power, prestige, money, sex, and all these other things, and let them drive our lives. Or we can be out of the world. We can build up our walls, protect ourselves, and make it harder for people to get in. I'm just going to tell you now, neither of those is a great option. Option number three is the one you want to go for here, the multiple choice test, check three, so you get it right. Right? Because what God is looking for us to do is not be in the world, living by its values. It's not being out of the world, despising it and not caring for it. It's going into the world. And that's Jesus' prayer here. Paul calls it being an ambassador for Christ. Not living for ourselves, not despising others, not owning them, not putting them down, 
but shining the light of truth in a darkened world, just as Jesus had done in John chapter 1. He is the light of the world, and the darkness did not overcome it. Our security and our sanctification aren't simply for us, but are meant to equip us to be sent ones who are pointing others to Jesus. And here's how the answer to the prayer again. Acts chapter 8, a persecution comes, the disciples now are scattered, and what does it say they do? Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. But this wasn't just those who were scattered, Peter's life, right? He has a dream, there's all these animals that are unclean according to Jewish law, and he hears this voice, get up Peter and kill and eat. And he's like, no, uh-uh, that's not what I do. And then God reveals to him, Peter, it's not about the animals, right? There are people out there made in my image who need me, and I'm sending you to one. And so Jesus shows up, at, uh, excuse me, Peter shows up, Jesus did show up through Peter, but at Cornelius' house. And he says, you know, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for me, a Jew, to associate with or visit any one other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter got it. And this is an answer to Jesus' prayer, right? That he said, God, I'm sending them into the world. And here's Peter going to Cornelius. And Cornelius' entire household, what? They believe. So let me ask you a few questions, just as an application. Are you secure in God's love for you and his work in your life? Are you resting in the truth that he is the one who keeps you? Or are you striving to keep yourself? Are you experiencing unity and joy in the body of Christ because of his work on your behalf? These are like indicator lights right on the dashboard of your life. Are you humbly submitting to the work of the Spirit and sanctifying you? Are you allowing him to make you more like Jesus? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for his word? Are you relying on God's grace to be obedient to the word? Do you realize, if you are a believer, that you're a sent one? Are you in the world, allowing its values to shape your life, or are you out of the world, removed from those things that are unclean? Or do you see yourself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, living out his gospel, bringing light to a darkened world? Are you using his word like a sword on others? Or are you allowing him to use his word to paint a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in your life so that others can see what he's like? And here's where we'll end. John 17, 19. Dave read it earlier. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart in a plan that was hatched before the foundations of the world, the scripture says. He sets himself apart, knowing that they're going to be sent out, knowing that they need to be sanctified. He does it himself, right? And it says in Hebrews, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up his prayers as supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Jesus set himself apart to suffer and die so that we may have life, so that those in our lives may have life. So I want to ask you to stand uh, and read this last part with me, because here's, here's the key. 
Jesus actually continues to pray. His prayers haven't ended. Right? Here's what it says. Let's read it together. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this prayer in John 17 that you prayed for your disciples. Thank you that you looked ahead and saw us. Thank you, God, that you intended for them to continue in the mission that Jesus began, and you intend that for us too. God, help us to grow in our understanding of how secure we are in you, grow in your call to be sanctified and set apart for your purposes, and grow as sent ones who are meant to be light and salt to this darkened world in which we live. Thank you, Jesus, for always making intercession for us. Thank you that you prayed for your disciples before you went to the cross, and you intercede for us now that you're seated on your throne. And we give you the glory. We make much of you, God, because of it. Amen.